People expect great things from their data, and few people know that better than James Campbell, the CTO of Superconductive, which is the team behind Great Expectations. Sean and I had the chance to sit down with James about folks' expectations of data and the amazing part of communities that rally behind technologies and more during this episode of Data Aware, a podcast about all things data engineering. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Data Aware podcast. Um, I know we took a little bit of a break while things were kind of crazy busy here at Ascend, and they were fantastic, but we have a really, really awesome episode to get us launched back in to kind of this new, quote, season of the podcast. So super excited um, for this one today. I am joined once again with Sean Knapp. Hey, Sean, how's it going? It's going great, Leslie. Good, 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 good. I hope you're as excited as I am. I am. I've been itching to get going on this again. Awesome. Same, same, same. So we are joined today with James Campbell, who is CTO of Superconductive, which Superconductive is the team behind Great Expectations, which is a really fun, awesome open source um, platform tool um, that is, we care a lot about and think is really fantastic over here at Ascend. So we are just totally stoked to get to talk to you, James. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Well, why don't you, I did a very quick intro. So why don't you give us a little bit more um, of your background, who you are, how you got um, started with Superconductive and then before Great Expectations and, and we'll kind of roll from there. Yeah, absolutely. So. For me, I think there's been a really fun, consistent trend of what's been interesting, which um, goes back to my academic background. I studied math and philosophy in college, and uh, I've always been really interested in the question of confidence and how we convey to other people um, what we know and how confident they can be in the judgments that we have. I spent the first part of my career in the intelligence community in the United States. Uh, I did a variety of different things. I started out working on cybersecurity issues and then moved into more political modeling. And during that time, I got to see and work with and, and eventually manage teams that were working on these really, really important high profile issues, often with extreme uncertainty, um, incredible resources available to us. Uh, but we were really interested not only in conveying judgments, but in making it easier for people to convey uh, models to help other people not just see what, what they saw today, but also how they saw the world and, and what they thought would be the dynamics of a system as well as, as how it looked right then. So, um, you know, for me, that kind of interest and long-term time getting to work on those kinds of issues also meant a lot of movement back and forth between qualitative and quantitative analytic approaches to understanding the world. Um, I think, like I mentioned, that goes right back to having studied math and philosophy. And for my time in the intelligence community, that meant that I got to move between time in data science elements as well as time in more traditional uh, analytic units. and. When I, when I got started on Great Expectations, um, I, I think we'll maybe talk about kind of the details of that later, but I, I realized that this was a great way to see, uh, kind of 
seal together, weave together the uh, the analytic approaches that that I had gotten to use in qualitative and quantitative groups and bring together very human-centric insights uh, and understanding about the world with insights that we get directly from data sets. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that we've talked about internally a little bit as I came on board at this time, this one of my the first jobs on the marketing side of things was actually for a company that was doing had an analytics solution for government. We did a lot with um, intelligence agencies. And even before that, I'd worked with a, a company that was doing cybersecurity for intelligence agencies. Mm. And a lot of the same problems that we saw then, that was you know, six or seven years ago, we're still seeing today. Um, and people are still trying to solve for today. So it's always really interesting, especially you know with you coming in through that background from a much different perspective, kind of seeing that play out as well, because it is it is a cycle that they are still trying to to fix, and you know, industry now is still trying is trying to fix that because they're starting to see the problems that government that had huge data sets was seeing years ago. Absolutely, I think one of the things that makes cybersecurity really fun is that it lives right at the intersection of like policy and people and technical systems. Right, like there's no technical solution to cyber, or at least to the most interesting class of cybersecurity problems or at least no, and, and not, you know, a, a single technical solution. Um, and it's been neat because like you said, there are certainly persistent problems, but also the landscape is dramatically different than it was when I started doing this a long time ago. There, you know, there, there have been tremendous advances in both the ability that defenders have to understand what's going on. And of course the sophistication and kind of breadth of activity of attackers. So with that, let's talk a little bit about how kind of great expectations itself came to be. Um, I I have heard little kind of bits and pieces of this in the industry, but I feel like there's a, a super interesting story there that maybe not everybody knows about. Yeah, I, I sometimes say that it it came on a single phone call. Abe, Abe Gong, who is the current CEO at Superconductive and original co-author with me of Great Expectations. And I, um, well, the if you want to go way back, the funny story is our, our families knew each other uh, when both of our parents were respectively, you know, in grad school. And, and, uh, and so we had sort of been acquainted over time, but didn't know each other particularly well. And, and then, um, Early in our careers, we, together with a few other people, started a, what we called a discussion group. Every week, we would all jump on a call and just talk about what we were seeing in our careers. And we were in pretty different places. Abe uh, studied political science uh, at Michigan for his PhD, very quantitative uh, approach on programs, but then became very interested in healthcare data and spent his, his time working in healthcare data startups. And of course, I was in the intelligence community and uh, we would just chat about everything from models that we found interesting to hiring and team building. And uh, on one of these calls, we, we, would, we would sort of pitch each other that we were going to present on something. And we'll, we'll, on one of these calls, Abe and I both said, you know what, I wanna talk about something that I'm working on. And we both, I mean, not by that name, but we realized partway through the call that we were literally pitching each other on the same thing. And it was great expectations. So we said, you know what, let's do it. Let's, uh, let's build this. And uh, at the time, I was actually at a, at a research lab sponsored by the, the government where our, 
where uh, we had a lot of latitude to work with, uh, you know, with the broader community and, and spark innovation as our mission. So uh, I wanted to work on that. And, and Abe had just started Superconductive at the time, Superconductive Health, mm -hmm. uh, where they were focusing on healthcare data and cleaning. And so for him as a side project, he focused together with me on building this, this open source library. So it was sort of a part-time endeavor for both of us. Uh, a little bit of a labor of love and you know what we observed and is the community is so powerful and and magical when you engage that uh, people really caught on and I think you know just like the two of us pitched each other I, I think there are probably lots and lots of people out there who had very similar ideas and were able to take advantage of of what we did in execution and now contribute to building and making an overall much better community and product. So it's super interesting, especially that, um, you know, how we see so many problems today get, get solved, right? Is somebody really feeling that pain directly and, and trying to solve it for their, their own experience and maybe a couple of, of, of folks and, and it growing so rapidly. And, you know, the community aspects are a really interesting one too. T like, tell us, what was that, that tipping point or that sort of aha moment where the two of you and probably I assume the broader team are like, oh my gosh, like there was something that like, <laughs> this is actually a thing. We should just quit everything else we're doing now and, and do this. Like what, what was that experience that you saw or, or, or heard from a, a user of the platform or something that, that was that, that tipping point for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think I, I, I need to almost point at more than one thing at the same time. Firstly, just to give, you know, I'll awkwardly give him credit since he's not here. Abe is really good at having that kind of vision of what a, what a product can become, which is what makes it so fun to work with him. And we also are really, really lucky. We have, our team is just a great, a great group of people. And so Kyle uh, on our team is our growth lead. And he was going out and really engaging with people and bringing back incredible feedback about what, what people were doing and, and then really started investing in building out a Slack community. Um, at the time, when we started, Slack was just the, you know, I, I was working in an environment and it was frankly just, I didn't have access to email very often. And so I just wanted a way to like conveniently Go downstairs, go to a go to a different computer where I could where I could touch the internet and uh, and get on you know and, and chat with someone. So Slack was just the like it was convenient because it was an asynchronous chat format where where Abe and I could send some messages back and forth. Um, and now you know there are thousands of members in the community, largely uh, spurred spurred on by the work of Kyle. So I think what I would point to there is just the adoption, right? It's not so much a single thing as the fact that people clearly saw value and kept kept going and going and going uh, back to the well and, and to the ability to um, to see what they could build with great expectations. If I if I had to point it at um, at, at like a moment where I kind of really felt like I, I saw so much of the power of open source, it'd be the point where uh, a user contributed, an adapter for one of the other big cloud providers. So I think we, we you know, built a connector for storing great expectations artifacts in S3 uh, right away because we, we were mostly on AWS at the time and somebody 
you know, wrote in and said, well, you know, here, let me, let me just contribute the GCP uh, connector. And the notion that, sure, you know, somebody's just going to pitch in, make the whole product better for everyone, really, it's just, again, like, what's been super fun for me to see. So I had a conversation with uh, Charity Majors, who's founder of Honeycomb in a, in a past life. And one of the things she said to me, which is uh, getting kind of tidbits of that with you is basically, she's like, I could not sleep. I couldn't do anything until I got this out in the world. And I, you know, obviously Honeycomb's a little bit different. Even I see that here, with, you know, with Ascend, with the team here, you know, Sean, but across the team where everybody's like, I so firmly believe in what we're doing. We have to put this out into the world and that it's always fun with an open source project. And I think this is also where kind of the Slack community comes in and just to your point, the broader community where it's like, you guys really wanted to see this out in the world, but a lot of other people looked at it and went, heck yeah, I need to see this out there too. So let me see what I can do to help with that. And that is always, it is really amazing to see and it does make you feel good. And then all of a sudden just seeing it kind of continue to grow is, is phenomenal. It's interesting that you say that because I, I, that you're right. That resonates with me very much. At the same time, I have to admit that I still see when I look, even now, when I look at great expectations, I still see so many things that we haven't yet gotten out, right? There are so many capabilities and features that I want to build and have and use myself. And I often, you know, we used to joke about this in, in uh, research a lot, you know, and this is a pretty common element in, in a lot of, you know, larger research organizations that, you know, you want to cycle through and, and not have people live in research forever because, uh, you know, you bring in fresh ideas when you've recently experienced problems. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I, I still view myself as, as building for my past self and maybe future self again. And my past self is not yet satisfied. <laughs> so we'll get there, but there's there's a lot. Uh, I'm a very needy past self, I think. But I think that's great. And Sean can jump in on this as well. And for, I'm sharing a little bit of the, the secret behind Descend, although I don't think it's that crazy, is that Sean's like, oh goodness, what are you about to say? We have, and we're actually coming up on it, which is why I'm thinking of it. We, for that exactly that reason, we have quarterly hackathons. Um, where our team can go, I, I want to see this in the wild. Like I want to see this as a part of the Ascend platform. This is something that I would use. And this is something that our customers greatly would like get value from. And so we dedicate the time every quarter to do that. And even down to like me and marketing, there's, I have a laundry list of things that I would like to get done because I think it's going to be helpful for people, you know, moving forward. And that I, but I think having that mindset of it's never fully done, there's always something that we can do is so important um, because you do always want to keep innovating. And there is always a new way that people can use, uh, you know, the product or, you know, can use a specific feature or whatever it might be. Yeah. I feel like this is like one of those ones where, I mean, we are all so fortunate, right. To get to build products that, connect with us and that we have used similar or will want to use uh, in the future. Um, and that's the great part about feeling that that sense of relevance as humans to work on things that you're so passionate about. As, as Lizzie mentioned, uh, we are very big on, on hackathons. We actually use these as the primary input to our quarterly product strategy. 
which is why we always have the hackathon a week or two before we plan for the next quarter. <laughs> uh, and we do a big one. It's, it's actually a 48 hour plus hackathon. We'll start tomorrow at 11, uh, Wednesday at 11 a.m. And that is the, the entirety of the rest of the week is a hackathon. Um, and I think that's, yeah, that's awesome. Like, it, it, we do this, right? Because it's the, it's a chance to exercise tremendous creative freedom and really think outside of the box and, and assure ourselves that it, you know, if and when we find these really incredible things that our, you know, our former selves deeply want, uh, that they will actually become part of the, the formal execution strategy going forward. Yeah, that I love, I love thinking about it in terms of almost like tinkering, you know, and l less because of, of some sense that the, that the way is completely unknown and more because in a very complex system, you can't understand all of the things that will change on the basis of, of some, some change that you make. And so it's useful to actually experiment and move quickly and you know, have that very entrepreneurial approach to building. Yeah, yeah. So, so let's pull this back a little bit to um, one thing I want to make sure is that, for, you know, particularly for our listeners, all sorts of really incredible things that we want to go do. We collectively, we're all part of the same team now. I just, I, I just volunteered myself onto Team Great Expectations um, <laughs> that we all want as part of uh, Great Expectations. Tell folks more who are listening. You know, how are people using GE today? And I mean, I, I know there's like, I know there's this whole glorious future vision yeah. for the product, but let's be honest, Great Expectations is also pretty darn awesome today, which is why you guys are doing uh, such incredible work and why you're getting so much traction. So how are people using uh, y'all today? And we'll, we'll go a little bit from there. Love that. Love that question. Actually, just yesterday, we had an intern give a presentation about um, some clustering models that he had built on, on kinds of expectation suites. One of the neat things of which is that it, it's very clear that there are different kinds of sort of high level user profiles of how people use GE, which, which I, is, is not, not super surprising, but let me talk about a few different ways that I think people use GE. One of them is the, 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 the kind of almost cleaning model or the, the just getting grips with your data, not just because it's, it's not a small thing, the way of just of, of getting grips with your data and making sure that you have a effective contract with other teams. And a lot of the time people will use great expectations in that sense for things like nullity checking and checking values uh, that they belong to a specific set. And, and a lot of that, again, is about making sure that as an organization, as a bigger group of people, you can detect changes and diagnose issues more quickly, get to insights about what you have available to you more quickly. So I see a lot of people use that for basically, I would call it a row-wise sort of a use case. We also see people who are using great expectations in uh, in a more in a more um, distributional sense, looking at batches of data and validating machine learning model inputs and outputs. Um, this would be things like I expect that no more than X percent of these values should be null, or no more than Y percent above yesterday, or something like that. Yeah, and 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 even even sometimes diving into a, a richer example might be something like I, 
you know, I expect that only 5% of my uh, customers spend a hundred dollars a month on dog food. And I picked that example because one of the, we had a great session with tails.com, which is a, they, they sell exotic dog food and, um, and they, they gave a, they gave a talk recently about one of the ways they use great expectations, which included validating uh, models of annual spend and, and kind of flagging an issue that, if you built your model uh, right before a holiday, you would substantially skew the expected uh, purchase for for uh, for pets, right? And and so the ability to encode the knowledge that I mean, it seems so obvious to a person the second you say it, and yet as data professionals, we've probably all been in the place where you're down in the weeds looking at sort of the spreadsheet equivalent, and. Uh, may not realize those kinds of underlying trends or seasonality or as important uh, ways to, to tease apart the data. So um, yeah, so that, that's a kind of a second, a second area. A third area that just to kind of throw it out quickly that I, I think a lot of people use great expectations to handle is what I would call schema level validation. Um, and it's, it's amazing how important that is. Uh, I think for, you know, in a, in a really robust deployment of great expectations, almost certainly you'll have a mix of all of those kinds of, uh, of expectations in there, but there are really good starting points along the way for, uh, for each of those kinds of approaches. Gosh, like this is um, it, something you said, but I think it's so powerful that, that I want to double and triple and quadruple down on because I, I want to make sure you know the uh, the listeners here kind of really uh, process this and and you know to paraphrase what you're saying is great expectations helps us validate the assumptions that we put into our our data and into our code base and I, and I think the the thing why that is so incredibly important is we oftentimes don't realize how many assumptions we truly have baked into our systems and into our code that are not explicit, that are just, I just happen to assume that, you know, this model was correct because I, I built it, you know, right before Christmas, or I just happen to assume that, you know, this was the nature of, you know, this field inside my data set because I looked at a small slice of it from last week, right? And we see the same thing on the ascend side, which is people just assume that, you know, when we're orchestrating data pipelines, that this data will always come in at that time or after this other piece of data, or it will never have trailing arrivals of data from you know, two days late, right? And so it's these kinds of assumptions that can oftentimes end up creating this tremendous chaos downstream. And even hitting the, you know, what you, you uh, touched on really early on is it's those assumptions when not validated or automated is what erode our confidence yep. in data. Absolutely. And I think to your point about when not validated, it, 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 the, I, the thing that makes this important is it's not, it's not like an assumption can be just validated and, and then you know it's true and you move on because the assumption needs to, in general, be revalidated, especially when it's a, you know, again, to, to the conversation about dynamic systems and, and especially complex uh, dynamic systems, the interaction effects and, and kind of the way that nonlinearities accumulate means that you need to continuously verify that what you have it, uh, sort of 
outlined as your as your requirements for your model or whatever are is, is true. You know, one thing that this really we're getting into kind of maybe a bit abstract, but I think one of the things that people see when they encounter great expectations is often there there are a couple of of reactions like one is like oh i've built this before which i love because it's true like yes you you probably have built this before now you probably didn't build it as completely and handle all the edge cases and so forth which is why people love it right because they they come in and they're like oh yeah yeah like i already knew that i needed this but then i think the other the other thing that people get to sort of next is realizing actually there's things that I used to do outside of the realm of the of automation that I can bring inside the realm of automation with a tool like Great Expectations. And so, you know, if, if, if you say I'm going to, you know, run a, uh, a very simple model of arrival times for data to use your example and, uh, you know, and maybe 99.9% .9 of my data arrives within a minute of, of the timestamp. And then there's just this tiny tail, some of which drags out for a couple of days. Um, making a model of that is not hard, right? No, like no data professional is going to think, oh, you know, well, that, that's going to break me. I, I've never figured out how to do that. On the other hand, continuously running it, checking it every time, you know, you know building the plot and just putting your eyeballs on it every now and then, that's hard. Right? It's hard because of the mental energy of doing it. And so taking that away lets you focus on what the data means or the insights that you're trying to draw, which I think people find, I certainly find really appealing and, and is really a valuable way to build processes. Yeah, I totally agree. It's funny, um, you know, oftentimes we think about this, uh, you know, for, in our world as uh, an automation system and we think about autonomous data pipelines. Well, oftentimes joke, you know, the like the, it has to constantly be validating and verifying dependencies and, and constantly working. It's not something that you just even schedule to work. Uh, very similar to how, you know, if you had your self-driving car, you don't want it to assume that, you know, the lane lines just happen to be this way because it saw them that way a month ago. You still want your, your you know, <laughs> autonomous car to continue to look for lane lines and make sure it's staying inside of those regardless of, of where they may be now. Yep. It's it, we we have one of one of uh, the the most longstanding jokes or kinds of ribbing that Abe and I do back and forth with each other is that he likes to kind of in the very uh, you know the zeitgeist of contemporary data engineering say everything is a DAG, and I and I always respond like no if it doesn't have feedback it doesn't count, and of course you know <laughs> both of these are true at the same time and but the the point I think is. What we're doing with great expectations is introducing the possibility of a feedback loop that makes the system actually be able to be dynamic and survive and adapt and to your point become autonomous eventually. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you don't have any feedback, you know, you're the old kind of robot, you know, the the, right. the if else robot. And that, the, that doesn't survive in the world. So, so one of the things that, that this gets super relevant and, or related to is, you know, what we see a lot of folks starting to talk about and in different circles, more or less, is this notion of data ops, right? And a lot of people have a lot of different definitions for it. Uh, I know uh, Gartner now has it on, on the hype cycle somewhere, and I think we're probably like surging pretty high up that first slope 
Um, but it's, a, it's an area that people are investing a lot in, right? Uh, and you know, there, there's a lot of sort of similarities we think of when we think about the, the data ecosystem and data ops and the DevOps ecosystem and, and what we do for software and, and what we do for data. How do you all see those? Like, what's similar, what's different? How do you see yourselves playing in this data ops ecosystem? Yeah, I, I have to admit, I really like the term. Um, I, and, and to be fair, I'm not sure I really ever learned what, I think, I think most of my early career was before DevOps was a word. And so I'm not hundred percent sure that I can claim to even understand that. And so probably I'm like, you know, by default ruled out from knowing what, what uh, data ops properly can mean. And I'm sure there are a lot of definitions, but I'll tell you why I, why I like it is one is to me, there's a huge amount of power in doing and the bringing the kind of operational aspects of any process into play, I think is approximately a proxy for the feedback process that we were talking about earlier, because it's about making sure that a system remains functioning and relevant, even as it's part of something else that is, uh, that is changing. For great expectations, I see us, you know, like Ascend right in that kind of squarely in the middle of that space. And, and I think that that reflects a number of different things. One is just the importance of being able to have insight into the process and to be able to see what it is that you're operating on and, um, and, and changing. Um, and, and then also because I think part of the, the idea of data ops is to professionalize what, you know, what I would maybe call something like agile change management around data systems and having, uh, having a tool like, like Great Expectations and, and others that are you know, similar in terms of being able to provide insight both into the status of a running system, but also into what might happen if you were to change data is really, really, or a pipeline is really, really important. So specifically, I, I think one of the use cases that I find really fascinating for great expectations is where you use the tool to identify in your real data, candidate new test data that you could use to evaluate, again, evaluate potential changes to a, to a system. So this is a super interesting one uh, that I'd love to unpack further. And, and the, because you know, one of the things you said, I, th I think really hits home here, which is, uh, you know, when we think about the, the classic DevOps world, right? You know, oftentimes I, I kind of paraphrase that as, look, despite all of the other sort of fancy definitions, DevOps is around how do we enable more people to write more software faster and safely, right? Just how do we scale this thing and, and go faster? And, and one of the words you used was iterate. Right? How do we break away from this massive waterfall style of building and, and into this more agile iterative model? And, and I think we see this uh, in the data ops world notion today, right? which is how do we enable more people to build more things faster and safely with data? And to do that, you need the, the ecosystem around it to have confidence right? that your, your data is actually safe and valid and working and that your systems are safe and valid and working and, and so very philosophically 
uh, and, and I'm going to, to use these words very carefully because I know I'm totally outgunned when we get into the, the philosophy domain. But philosophically, we are, um, you know, we're trying to do the same thing just in, in data, right? And I think the, we think of the tremendous impact DevOps has had in the software domain. You know, I, I think the one really interesting question I wanted to dive in uh, with you on was, what is the, the benefit, like what the value, right? Because DevOps has driven tremendous value for, for teams, for organizations and for companies. What's the value or, or put another way, what, what is the cost, you know, for a lack of confidence or a lack of ability yeah. to actually iterate and, and to be trapped in this waterfall world of data? What is that cost and what is that benefit that you all yeah. see with your, your users and customers? Well, firstly, wow, I love the way you characterize that process. I think that is, you know, spot on. And, I, you know, the notion that what the system is about is making it easier for people to contribute safely uh, is, is awesome. And, and I think that suggests metrics around things like, you know, I, I remember we used to sometimes joke the amount of time that it takes to spin up a server. Um, and, you know, there was a time where that was actually measured in years because you had to get acquisition and, and, you know, wait in line for space in the server room. And now, you know, sometimes I forget that I left one up and it's like, oh yeah, I'll just spin that back down. You know, it's like, it's, it's not even an issue. Um, that, that said, I, I feel like to your question of what is the cost of not doing this? I think this actually goes really well to the motivating story for me in Great Expectations was if I had to pin it down to one very specific case, um, it's one I, I, can't, I won't dive into like any of the specific details, but basically we had a model that um, used a particular type of, of data and the data is widely available, this kind of data. So like, we'll, we'll pretend for a second it's, it's weather data. And, um, and so, you know, we were looking at, you know, this model and it, and it, you know, maybe did something like tell you, uh, what, what the temperature was likely to be, uh, at some point in the future. Well, the thing was the model was built around data that was, let's say hourly. Um, but the structure of data that's reported say every minute is fundamentally the same. So if you have a user who doesn't know exactly what, and, and obviously it, this wasn't exactly the case, maybe that one's gonna be too, seem too easy, but when you have a user who doesn't know the, the details of what the data is and, and what it can mean and what it does mean, you, you really risk giving kind of non, what I would call nonsensical answers. I mean, they look right, they make sense. It says 78 degrees. Uh, well, that that's totally plausible, and it might be just completely wrong, right? Like because to your point earlier, you didn't check the assumptions of the systems. One of the assumptions was the periodicity of the input data, or the quality of the input data, or and this actually happened to me not that long ago: uh, pounds versus kilograms in a in a scale. And somehow in my head, I magically realized I was like, oh well, you just subtract a hundred. And you know, for this one data point where I had first looked, it made sense. But no, of course, it's just a complete, you know. So uh, so I think that's that's the the real risk. I do want to flip it back to just for a second and say, what's sure. the opportunity? Because yeah. 
The thing that I think is really amazing about to pick up particular tool spreadsheets is just how well they work because like they're, they, they last well because they work well. They empower domain experts to get insights really, really, really quickly. And that's amazing. And we're not going to beat that um, for just getting started or just building some new quick model. Or like in my case, when I'm basically, it's a calculator. The thing that we can, we can unlock, I think, is allowing more and more people to get raw data or data from some source into the format that they're comfortable and familiar with working with it. And so, you know, part of that, of course, is, is the pipeline building. But then a part of that is also the like, does this approximately make sense? Like, did I do this right? And the ability to have what I'll call out of band information, like the human kind of like the gut sense of, you know, the, the classic example from from early AI is like, is, is this bigger than a bread box or whatever, right? Like people are really good at knowing stuff that's bigger than a bread box. It's a surprisingly hard question, but if you can encode more and more of that information into your process, then you can say, hey, you know, this, this thing that you said should be about as big as a bread box, like it's approximately the size of a house. Like you might not be looking at what you think you're looking at. So it's interting and let's uh, to kind of twist on that just a, a little bit to kind of another area, which is there are ways people are going to use great expectations. And I know with an open source tool, it's kind of difficult because you don't always know how people are using it, but what are some of the, I mean, clearly you have ways that people are using it, but what are some of the really like fun use cases that you've seen or where is it where you see somebody and they just had gone completely off the rails and now it's kind of their back in what they need to do or, or what are some of the really awesome ways that you have seen the community come in and use, use great expectations? Yeah, that, I, I love that question. And I will say that I do wish that we had more insight into all the ways that people use great expectations. I still get, I have a, a blast hearing about them sometimes where I'll find out so-and-so company is using it and I had no idea. One of the things that we had a conversation about recently as, as we're, so we didn't talk about this, but we're, we're planning to build a SaaS product around great expectations that makes it much easier to use and to collaborate with other people who are using great expectations, have conversations and insights into all the metrics that are generated. Yeah. So we've been having conversations with companies that are using the current open source version to understand you know, what their deployment patterns look like and, and where we can help make that easier. And one of the things that I just find amazing is like, the breadth of the breadth of of kinds of companies. So, um, actually, one of the the very very first deployments, and they, you know, of course, of course, it was almost a different product in some ways back then. But uh, is Calm, which is a meditation app. Which, if you haven't used it, like it's it's awesome. Uh, we use their sleep stories in my house. And I, my daughter uses it like every night. Um, well, they were some of the earliest Great Expectations users. And it was really interesting to me that the way that they uh, got started on 
uh, populating expectations was this kind of iterative back and forth exchange with, uh, with internal analysts on their team. Mm -hmm. And what I, what I think that has led us to realize is that in many ways, setting up expectations is exactly like building a question answer system. It's, it's a dialogue with data. Um, so who asks questions of the data? Absolutely everybody. I mean, we had, you know, one of the other talks that was recently given in our community forum was from um, uh, Maersk, the, the giant shipping container uh, company. Um, and uh, again, I, you know, I don't want to, this is, you know, go into marketing mode or anything, but the breadth of applications is just phenomenal. And I think more than any single one, that's what I would say is, is just how universally people see the problem and, um, and, and, you know, the value in addressing it. That makes a ton of sense. Well, to wrap it up, I always like asking this kind of final question, because I think to your point, the breadth of smarts across the board are fantastic and I always enjoy hearing it. But, you know, what are you most looking forward to, whether it is within what you guys are doing with great expectations or whether it is just in kind of the data industry overall, you know, over the next, and I hesitate to say two to five years, because I feel like five years in the data industry is just like, you have no <laughs> idea what's going to happen. Um, but what are you kind of most looking forward to in the future with data, whether it's a, a use case or a particular technology or, you know, whatever that might be? Yeah. Well, first, I'm going to go ahead and go out on a limb and say, five years from now, we will still be using spreadsheets. Um, <laughs> I would agree with that. I, I think, think I would agree bet. with that. Don would probably agree with that. Everybody loves a good spreadsheet. <laughs> um, I think for me, what I'm most excited about is consistently the way that we close the loop between machine understandable and human understandable systems and statements. And I think great expectations is a lot about bridging that gap. What I think we're going to see and where I'm really excited is when we have better tools for tr immediately transforming our discussions into insights, we'll, we'll the phrase we use a lot on, on the great expectations team is we'll leave less on the cutting room floor. So right now, I think one of the big insights that leads people to, to engage with great expectations is that they already know a lot of the things that they're putting in expectations. That information just gets lost when they build their pipeline because they did, the, they did exploratory analysis. They went through and they tested assumptions. And you know, they, they, they built the system that they built because of what they learned. But then that information kind of goes away and then the world evolves and then you end up having a breakage and you need to go back and revalidate it. Whereas if you instrument it along the way, uh, you, you get a benefit. Now imagine that you can actually have structured conversations about the, the observations that you have from your data set, about times when something breaks or changes in an unexpected way. And those conversations can immediately get folded into updates to your existing expectations, new expectations. So I think it's it's really about making the, the amount of friction required to move between all the different places that we work less and really harnessing the, the 
human understanding, the deeper semantic understanding of data uh, that I think we're gonna see just a tremendous explosion of potential. Awesome. That was not something we've heard. I mean, <laughs> and no, I mean, it's it's fantastic. It's a great way of thinking about it. So, James, thank you so much. This has been a ton of fun and super interesting. And I think it's a, I think it's a really great episode coming back from our hiatus. It's been fantastic. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. This is yeah, blast. Yeah. This is fun stuff. Don't tell us that too much or else we'll have you back. You'll just okay. <laughs> keep having you. I feel like. I feel like we have so many other things to go pull threads on. I like, I love, love this uh, notion of having a dialogue with your data. We just yeah. started to unpack these parts of, you know, validating and automating assumptions to build confidence, which is really, you know, I think it's going to be that backbone of this data ops movement and, and era, right? Um, so, so much more to, to unpack. So, very much agree. Thank you, James. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, I couldn't have asked for a more fun first episode back. So thanks to James for joining us today to track Great Expectations. You can find out more about that at greatexpectations.io. And as always, we want to hear from you. Reach out on Twitter at ascend underscore IO or on LinkedIn with guests and topic ideas. We always love hearing what you guys want to hear about next. Welcome to a new era of data engineering.